You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. I have a few things that I want to just kind of talk about before we get started tonight. Hopefully it won't be too long um, with all of this. But while you're turning to Deuteronomy chapter 24... Um, then I'll, I just want to present a few things, talk to you about a, a few things uh, tonight, and then we'll get into the message. Deuteronomy chapter 24 is where we are going to be here in just a few moments. Uh, the first thing I want to ask for is for forgiveness if I have not remembered your name today. And uh, it's, it's pretty easy in the directory for some reason and then I see somebody face to face, and my mind just goes blank. So I'm, I apologize for that if I've missed your name. It's happened to, to more than just you. I can promise you that. Um, you know, I've, I've did, done it to multiple people. Um, but uh, just want to start by saying that. And then I want to say again, as I said this morning, for some that may have not been in here, um, that I just want to say thank you for the unity that you showed in the vote uh, last month. It, it's just a huge blessing to our family a vote of confirmation in our own hearts um, that, you know, this is where God is leading us. And we're so thankful that you followed Pastor Spencer's leadership and, uh, and, and we had a 100% vote. And uh, at least that's what he told me. It could have been 65, but he said, uh, he told me 100, maybe to make me feel better about it. But I, I, I'm just thankful that you're willing to follow your pastor like that. And uh, I, it says a lot about Brother Spencer, I know that he could lead the church to that point. But it also says a lot about you as a church, that you're willing to follow at that point. And so I just want to say thank you for that. And, uh, and right now we are in the process. If we had had our, our way, we'd, prob- we'd already be here. Um, but we are waiting for our house to sell still. We've had it on the market for five weeks, I think. And uh, sometimes, and like I said this morning, sometimes it's a day, sometimes it's three months. And you just never know how that stuff will happen. We have it marked, uh, priced fairly, and for the market, I think it's where it needs to be. Um, we're waiting for the market to pick up a little bit there in Stillwater. So that, we're, we're praying that happens very soon, and as soon as it does, it kind of frees us up to be able uh, to make that transition a little bit more smoothly. But whether or not it has sold, our plan right now, and again, we leave these things in the Lord's hands, but our plan right now is, you know, Pastor Spencer's last Sunday is the 24th, and then our first Sunday would be the 31st. And that, that it may not take place that way. I, you know, I'm, I, I don't want to make any promises or make plans without the Lord. But right now, that's our intention. And so if you could pray that we could, that, that would be the time frame that we could work with, then we sure would appreciate it. That means we'd be moving sometime between the 24th and the 31st and, uh, and be here for the end of March. Um, so also, too, I just want to mention, it's already been talked about, and I'm thankful for the work that's being done for the Spencers and uh, for the honoring of the Spencers in their last service. And that, that, that takes place in uh, three weeks, or is it, yeah, three weeks from today. And I know the deacons are working on some things, and there are other folks working on that. And I just want to ask you uh, to consider that Pastor Spencer, as the shepherd of this church, has for 40 years approximately uh, been someone that's been concerned about your soul. He's, been, he's, he's labored and given his life to be the shepherd of this flock to prepare you for the judgment seat of Christ. 
And there's been no more valuable spiritual relationship in your life that you could have had than Pastor Spencer and the role that he's played. And Miss Yvette, I, I know for the ladies as well. And I just want to ask you, um, if it seems crazy, um, if it seems like it's too much, it still probably isn't. Whatever you can do to honor and, and pay him respect, um, then I, I, I say you need to, you need to do it. Uh, because again, he's given his life to be your shepherd, to pre prepare you for the judgment seat of Christ. And you have nobody else in your life that's been your pastor as, as Eastside Baptist Church for the past 40 years. He's the one person that's been doing that. And so I just want to encourage you to strongly consider, even if you think that's just far and above and beyond what, what needs to happen, again, it's still probably not um, for, for somebody who's given their life in that kind of labor. So just want to encourage you to get involved in that Sunday and make it a day they never forget. Let them know how thankful you are for their work and labor in your lives. And then another, another um, thing that I have been considering and uh, a decision that I've been considering making um, for this summer, uh, one, one of the things that I, is on my heart is, is to uh, invest in, younger, in young men, uh, to invest in them in the ministry. Part of my uh, relationship with Heartland has been my own desire to have a, an impact on the next generation. Uh, you know, that's been evident as well in my role as youth pastor at Bible Baptist Church for all these years. And uh, I've, I've given myself in many ways to the young men coming up behind and the young ladies coming behind because I have a heart for it. And when you consider all that they're facing in our culture, they need voices for the opposite side. They need someone that will tell them truth and give them something um, that's with more substance than our culture encourages them to live. And, um, and so one of, those, one of the things that I have a heart for is investing in younger people and, and helping them along. And I've, I've always loved the idea of having uh, summer interns. And uh, we've done that a few times at our church in Stillwater. And I, I know that there's been at times that there, there have been a, there's been summer interns here at Eastside Baptist Church. And I think it's a great idea, and especially considering um, that hiring an assistant pastor um, in a time frame that, you know, is quick probably isn't going to happen at this point. That's, a, that's just a big decision. Um, but one of the things that's on my heart is to potentially bring in a couple of young men for the summer to be interns at Eastside Baptist Church um, as a help not only to me, but also as a help to them. I feel like Eastside Baptist Church has a lot that, that you could teach young men that are being trained in the ministry. And there are a couple of young men that I have invested in um, that are going to Heartland Baptist Bible College right now, and they don't have plans for the summer. They're from Bible Baptist Church in Stillwater. And I'd love to, if it's possible, I know financially speaking, it's something that I believe that we can do, um, but there are some things that would have to be worked out for that to happen and one of, those, one of the largest things would be for them to have some housing for the summer. And so there's two specific young men that God's laid on my heart to potentially bring in. And I know that doesn't answer the long-term question of having an assistant pastor. But I can tell you, as someone who would, for the most part, be the only man in the office every day um, over the course of a summer, it could be a huge help to me to be able to hand some things off to them and not only uh, you know, the help that they would receive in that training for the summer. So I'm just praying about that and seeking the Lord about it. And uh, a, one big piece of that would be 
for those uh, two young men to have a place to stay for the summer. So I'm just going to throw that out there and let you consider that and sit on that. And if you have some ideas of some place that they could be uh, for the summer, they don't require much. Um, you know, if, you, if I know much about college students, they don't take many showers anyway. So they probably just need a place to sleep. It could be the garage or under your deck. They probably don't care. If they've been at Heartland for very long at all, you guys can attest to this, they'd sleep anywhere, you know, just about. So, um, but again, my heart for investing in young people um, and, and the next generation kind of really uh, lights a fire under me. Uh, I feel like Eastside Baptist Church has a lot to invest in the next generation. And I'd love to have a part in that. And uh, those two young men, um, their names are Curtis and Jacob. And there's, they're quality young men that I think would fit, fit in right here. So if you have ideas about maybe a place for housing for them for this summer, maybe talk to me tonight or talk to me. We'll be here through Wednesday night and uh, we'll, we'll maybe tackle that one together. And I think it could be a help not only to me personally and not only to our church, but also to those young men as we invest in their lives. Uh, there's, there's so much to do and I'm thankful for the opportunity to be at a place where I feel like we could really make a difference in the next generation. And uh, that would be one way that we could. So I just want to plant that seed and let me know if you have any ideas about housing and, and we'll, we'll move forward from there. Okay, Deuteronomy 24. Let's stand together as we read this passage and we'll jump in tonight. Deuteronomy chapter 24. We'll begin reading in verse 14 and read down through the end of the chapter. It says, Thou shalt not oppress an hired servant that is poor and needy, whether he be of thy brethren or of thy strangers, or of thy strangers that are in thy land within thy gates. At his, at his day thou shalt give him his hire, neither shall the sun go down upon it. For he is poor, and setteth his heart upon it, lest he cry against thee unto the Lord, and it be sin unto thee. The fathers shall not be put to death for the children, Neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. Thou shalt not pervert the judgment of the stranger, nor of the fatherless, nor take a widow's raiment to pledge. But thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondsman, a bondman in Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee thence. Therefore I command thee to do this thing. When thou cuttest down thine harvest in thy field, and hast forgot a sheaf in the field, Thou shalt not, not go again to fetch it. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all the work of thine hands. When thou beatest thine olive tree, thou shalt not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. When thou gatherest the grapes of thy vineyard, thou shalt not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command thee to do this thing. Tonight we're going to preach, uh, preach about uh, something that does us all as children of God good to remember. And that is to remember what we used to be. To remember what you were. And how much of our motivation... To reach out to others comes because we remember what it used to be like for us. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you for the truth tonight. And uh, in advance, I ask for you to give me wisdom, help my voice to be strong. And I pray that you'd help me to hide behind the cross and that your Holy Spirit would be that the one that's conducting this, Lord, and speaking. And I, I'm asking for your help tonight. I ask that you give me the words, help for my mind to be clear, and for good liberty as I preach this truth in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. I remember a few years ago, uh, it was announced, and I'm not sure if it ever, if it's taken place yet or gone into effect yet, but I remember a few years ago, it was announced that Harriet Tubman would replace Andrew Jackson on the $20 bill. I don't know if you remember hearing this announcement. I mean, it doesn't really impact me that much either way. I'll still see a lot more Washingtons than I do Tubmans, but I think it's a significant gesture to honor someone who came from nothing and made a big difference in people's lives. And Harriet Tubman, you could say she certainly fits into that category. She was an American who escaped slavery in 1849, and she became a leading abolitionist before the Civil War. She wanted to abolish slavery, and even though she had gained her freedom, she risked it many times to re-enter the South and rescue both family members and non-relatives alike from the plantation slavery system. She led hundreds of her fellow people to freedom in the North. She was the most famous conductor in the Underground Railroad. If you've taken any history classes or you remember history in school at all, you probably remember the name Harriet Tubman. They called her Moses because she led so many from bondage to freedom. And she was so passionate about others experiencing freedom that she put her own freedom on the line to give others the same opportunity that she enjoyed. What was her motivation? Well, I, I think I have a hypothesis about that, but I want to present some truth out of Deuteronomy 24 first, and then we'll bring Harriet Tubman back into it here in just a little bit. Uh, this passage in Deuteronomy 24 was written to masters, judges, and the rich. So again, there are three categories of people that are written to by Moses here in Deuteronomy. He's writing to masters, he's writing to judges, and he's writing to the rich. And the theme of our text today is how those in a position of means should treat those that don't have the same kind of means. Those that in social standing would be up here, how they should treat those who in social standing would be down here. Those with many resources, how they should treat those with many fewer resources. And in verses 14 and 15, he gives a command to masters. Again, he says, verse 14, Thou shalt not oppress an hired servant that is poor and needy, whether he be of thy brethren or of thy strangers that are in thy land within thy gates. At his day thou shalt give him his hire. Neither shall the sun go down upon it, for he is poor and setteth his heart upon it, lest he cry against thee unto the Lord, and it be sin unto thee. What he's saying, this is a command to masters. And when I say masters, I mean more an employee, an employer-employee relationship. This is someone who has those that he hires to work a field, someone who, who has property and is working crops. Um, and what he's, when Moses is saying, what the Lord is saying through Moses, is don't oppress them by maybe giving them too much work or, or being too overbearing, take care of them. He says also be faithful and punctual in how you pay them their wages. 
Uh, the typical arrangement in this culture was payment at the end of a day's work. So at the end of every day, you know, it'd be like the, you know, the men that stand out in, on the corner in front of a, of a lumber yard, or, or I don't know how they do it around here, but there'll be men that are standing there looking for a day's work, and they're hired for the day, and at the end of the day, those men will be paid for their work. If a, work, if a person works by day, these by day wages, he's probably living hand to mouth. And he's probably needing that money at the end of his shift because maybe his family and eating would be dependent on whether or not he gets paid at the end of the day. So, so Moses is telling masters to, to be faithful, to be punctual in how you pay those that you hire. There's a phrase there in verse 15 that says, he setteth his heart on it. And that means that wage is extremely important to him. That money is very important. He's depending on it as God's provision to help his family survive. And there's two results here. He'll be sorely disappointed, and two, the employer will be guilty of wrongdoing. So God, God makes it clear through Moses that if you hire somebody as an employer, that you pay them fairly, you pay them punctually, and you give them what they have earned at the end of the day because their heart is set on it. And I know I'm going to give you a lot of background here. I don't want to lose you before we get to the application, so stay plugged in. In verses 16 through 18, he gives a command to judges. So we see there's a command to masters, and in verse 16, he gives a command to judges. It says, The fathers shall not be put to death for the children, neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. And what he's saying there, it teaches personal responsibility. Is that something we need to learn a little bit more about in our country? Personal responsibility. I mean, you don't have to say amen. A few of you did, I'm thankful. But we need personal responsibility, don't we? We need to teach our children personal responsibility. And what God is teaching is that individuals are responsible for their own actions. You know, that's something that a lot of people could learn. And what he's saying, though, is that parents don't pay for their children's crimes. The, children's don't pay for the, the children don't pay for their parents' crimes, and vice versa. You know, this is, this is something very similar, um, you know, to something that needs to be taught in our culture. We have, a lot, we have a generation coming up that's basically saying, I want to be taken care of, but I don't want really to be responsible for myself being taken care of. Or if someone gets in trouble for breaking the law, they're always looking to shift the blame to someone else instead of taking responsibility. And God is saying that we need to make sure that people understand their actions are, are to be uh, punished to them alone. If, they, if they've broken the law, if they've done something they, shouldn't, they should not do, they should be punished themselves. And there may have been times that God might would punish multiple generations for the sin of idolatry or something along those lines, but he's very clear to the human judges here in Deuteronomy 24 that that is not their role. If someone stands before you and they have done something that was against the law, they alone are to be punished for their actions. So he gives a command to employers, he gives a command to judges, and, and, and then he, as he's talking to the judges, um, he says, in legal cases maybe against others. Look at verse 17. Thou shalt not pervert the judgment of the stranger, nor of the fatherless, nor take a widow's raiment to pledge. So in legal cases against others, it was up to the judges 
to not allow someone who might be innocent to suffer simply because they don't have the means to protect themselves. So if someone comes along and they're fatherless, if they're an orphan, or if they're, or if they're a widow and they don't have any resources to protect themselves or finances to help themselves, um, if that person coming in doesn't have money or friends to be a witness in a case against somebody else with maybe with means, it's the responsibility of the judge to make sure everyone is on equal footing. So you can imagine in that culture, if there's a widow that, that doesn't have financial means to protect herself, and someone wants to take something of hers, so they do, and she wants to go to court and, and, and stand before a judge and have the person that stole from her to pay for their, consequ- their, their consequences for their actions, well, if she doesn't have money, and she's a widow, and she doesn't have any witnesses, she doesn't have anybody to stand there with her and be a help to her, then what Moses is telling the judge is that you need to stand up for the widows. You need to stand up for the fatherless because they don't have someone there to help them in those times. They don't have the means. They don't have the resources. And it's your job as a judge to put everybody on equal footing. And then he gives one more command. So we have masters, and then we have judges, and then we have a command to the wealthy. Look at verse 19. When thou cuttest down thine harvest in thy field, and hast forgot a sheaf in the field, thou shalt not go again to fetch it. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all the work of thy hands. And what he's telling them is to be kind and charitable to the poor by following the laws of gleaning. And we're not going to get into all of that. I know we all love to read Leviticus for hours on end, but we won't tonight. Um, These laws were installed to give those that were foreigners or those that were widows or those that were orphans an opportunity to gather food since they wouldn't typically have an inheritance. They wouldn't typically have property. So certain crops and produce would be maybe unripe or in the, in the harvesting process that produce would be missed in the field. And so God commanded Israel to leave it for the less fortunate. And if you missed a, a section of your field then you were to leave that for those that didn't have resources, that didn't have money, that didn't have property. And it was your job to leave that section so that in gleaning, uh, uh, someone, a widow, could come along and she could sustain herself by gleaning what was left in the field. Or someone, an orphan, a father, someone fatherless, could come along and they could, re- they could reap uh, what was left in the field to sustain themselves, to take care of themselves. And I know, again, this is a lot of background, but, but we're, getting, we're coming to a point here. In the end of verse 19, it mentions that God will bless the one who considers the poor when harvesting his crops. And, and I could spend a lot of time on each of these, and we could get much more into it, but all of these commandments to Israel are illustrations of a mindset that God wanted the children of Israel to have to someone who has less than they do. He's trying to, God is trying to instill in them a mindset. You see, because there are two categories of people in this passage. You have on one hand, you have the masters and you have the judges and you have the wealthy. We're going to call those the haves, H-A-V-E-S. And then you also in this passage 
have a category of people that are the fatherless and the widows and the poor. And we would call those the have-nots. So you have the haves, and they've got resources, and they've got wealth, and they've got all kinds of things. They're the rich, they're their masters, they're the judges. And then over here, you have the orphans and the widows and the poor. You have the haves and the have-nots. And the summary here of this text is that God is helping the haves to know what their attitude should be toward the have-nots. See, how God views the have-nots is a pretty incredible. See, God doesn't ignore those with less. God has always had a special place in his heart for the weak and the underprivileged. And he views them with compassion. He, he sees them with mercy. And he places value on their lives. Even like we talked about this morning, how God sees a, a, a soul even inside a mother's womb as having great value. Every soul, every person in God's eyes is valuable to God. It is God's desire to see the have-nots, to see the fatherless and the widows and the poor, to see them taken care of. Consider the fact, if you don't know that you're, you, know, you really buy into that, that God loves the have-nots, I want you to consider that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. And you know what He sent Him? Did, did God send His Son, Jesus Christ, as a have or did he send him as a have-not? Tell me, did he send him as a have or a have-not? As a son of a carpenter? He wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't raised in the home of a king. And we know that even in his adult life, in his, during his earthly ministry, the Bible says the Son of Man hath not a place to lay his head. Jesus Christ, God's only Son, who came to die on the cross, he himself would have been looked at as a have-not. So if you don't think that God has much concern for the have-nots, I want you to consider that He sent His Son as a stranger. I want you to consider that when He died, He had no place to be buried. God's own Son was a have-not. And yet sometimes, you and I, in our means, we consider the have-nots maybe to be less somehow than us. Or we look at the have-nots and we're not really as interested maybe in, in reaching them or maybe we don't, we don't consider them nearly as much as we would as somebody were to walk through those doors with, real, with great means. And I, we would probably focus our attention on someone who comes in and looks like they're a have and we might be less inclined to give our attention and focus and compassion and love to someone that is a have-not. But I want you to remember and notice these two verses that stood out to me when I was reading this passage. Look again at verse 18. It says, But thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee thence. Therefore I command thee to do this thing. Look down at verse 22. And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt. Therefore I command thee to do this thing. And what God is telling the children of Israel, He's saying, is remember what you used to be. Remember what you were. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt. And as a slave, you were a debtor. As a slave, you were poor. As a slave, you lived hand to mouth, day to day. As a slave, you had no one to speak on your behalf. As a slave, you wondered where your next meal would come from. 
as a slave, remember how it used to feel when you laid your bed, your, your head in the bed at night and your stomach was empty. Remember, remember what it was like when you didn't have good clothes or good shoes. Remember what it was like when you were what you used to be. And here's the message that God is giving to his people. Have mercy on the have-nots because you used to be one too. Have mercy on the have-nots because you used to be one too. This is a message he gave to Israel many times in the Old Testament. And I've got a, a list of verses that I could read to you tonight. And I'm not going to do it. I just want you to understand, God wants his people to view the have-nots with mercy and compassion. And this is an important principle to Israel. But it's also an important principle for us. Because remembering what we used to be will affect how we treat the have-nots. And it still applies. We could use this thought to transition maybe into the importance of taking care of people's physical needs, uh, maybe those around us that may need food, or I think about the weather in Sioux Falls. And when there, there, someone that doesn't have a home or someone that doesn't have a place to live in weather like this, I mean, where do they go? And I'm, I mean, those are valid needs. Those are important things to take care of. And I, I remember um, a few years ago, I saw this news story about this two-year-old Nigerian boy. And he was abandoned by his parents as a two-year-old. And you could look it up, and it probably, it, it's going to affect you probably like it did me. When I saw a picture of his little emaciated body, his parents, you know, because of the superstitions in certain cultures, when he was born, his parents thought that he was a witch. So as a two-year-old, they literally abandoned him on the streets. And so for eight months, he lived on the streets and as a two-year-old, survived as a two-year-old on the streets. But obviously, he didn't have any money. He didn't have any food. He scavenged for himself. And I remember seeing a picture of this, this little two-year-old Nigerian boy and it did something to affect me. He's sitting drinking uh, out of a water bottle that someone, an American or, or someone from another country, had found him and given him a drink of water. And he's just sitting there drinking this water and is just so thin and skinny and, and so unhealthy and you can see it in his face. And in my own mind, I'm thinking of my own children. And I'm thinking, if that was my child... I mean, I can't really think about it too much, or I get emotional about it, but it's someone's child. It's someone's baby. A two-year-old living on the street and scavenging for himself, and it just tugged at my heartstrings. And as much as it tugs on my heartstrings, and as thankful as I am for the causes that go into countries, third world countries, and, and help take care of the physical needs of young children like that, and, how's, and, and even though it's tough for me not to picture my own children being in that situation, I want to say that tonight, that as important as it is for people to do those things, they are targeting temporary needs. And I think it's valid, and I think it's important, and I think we should be involved in those things as we can. They are life-saving needs. They're absolutely important causes, and we ought to be involved if we can. But let me just, un just remind you, that to be a part of a local New Testament, uh, Testament church, the primary purpose and goal of Eastside Baptist Church is not to meet the physical needs of people around us. And I'm not trying to be heartless. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be involved. But there are countless organizations out there whose stated purpose and goal is to take care of people's physical needs. 
And yet those organizations out there whose stated purpose is to take care of the spiritual needs of people are few and far between. And even then, plenty of them say that, yes, we are here to take care of the spiritual needs of the people in our community, but they're not even preaching the gospel as it needs to be preached, so they have no way to take care of people's spiritual needs. Eastside Baptist Church is a rare exception in today's modern church culture. We have the gospel, we're preaching it correctly, we have right doctrine. Our stated goal and responsibility is not just to feed people physically, we are to feed people spiritually. We are to reach souls and rescue people and see lives transformed. And that for us is our first most and most important cause. So the application of this principle, you know, having mercy on the have-nots is not just, well, when I see a have-not on the side of the road and he's holding up a sign that says, haven't eaten in a few days, anything helps. It's not to say that, you know, okay, well, we can't feed them or we can't have compassion on them or we can't reach out to them in some way. No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that the most important need in that man's life that stands on the side of the road is not that he eats a a, a supper for the night. It's that his soul is reached and his sin is taken care of. And we help him to see where he stands before God. And the gospel is how we reach him first and foremost. That's That's our primary purpose. It's our primary stated goal as a New Testament church is to reach the world that's full of spiritual have-nots. Not just their physical needs, but their spiritual needs. And let me just say this too, that I'm not saying that just because you're a have, that you're better than anybody else. Because I think we would all agree that being a have is nothing I've earned. And just because God reached down to me and showed mercy to me and saved my soul as a nine-year-old boy at junior camp after hearing a message about hell. And I'm thankful that he reached down and he saved me and he convicted me of my sin and I was able to take care of that by making that decision. I'm grateful for that. But I've done nothing more to earn that than somebody in Nigeria or someone on the other side of the world or someone across the street from you, your neighbor that's unsafe. We've done nothing to earn salvation. If we're a have, it is only because God's grace has made us a have. And be thankful for that. We've done nothing to earn it. We're better than no one else. I mean, look again at verse 18 just as a reminder of this. But thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee thence. Just like the children of Israel, we were slaves in Egypt. Maybe our own Egypt, was we were enslaved to sin. We were miserable. We were in bondage. We had very little hope. And just like the children of Israel, we couldn't escape by working harder. We could never pay for our own payment. And just like Israel, our only hope of escaping that sin was redemption, except our redemption came through the cross. Their redemption came through God sending Moses to lead them across the Red Sea. So just because I have, it doesn't mean I deserve to have more than anybody else. We're all benefactors of a Redeemer who stepped in and died on a cross to make us halves. And if we forget, if we forget that, we will find ourselves in a great deal of trouble because it reminds me of Revelation 3 when Jesus Christ spoke to the church at Laodicea and he said, because thou sayest I am rich, 
and I am increased with goods. I have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. And listen, the church at Laodicea, their problem was not anything except the fact that they had forgotten all that Jesus Christ did for them. And it is possible for us to forget what we once were. When we start to think, oh, look at all I have. Look at all that I've earned. Look at all that I have built. And we forget that it is only through a Redeemer that we have any of it. We are placing ourselves in a position of God's judgment. So look around. The have-nots deserve to have just as much as the haves. And it's only by God's grace that the roles aren't flipped. It's only by God's grace that this isn't a room full of other people tonight. It's only by God's grace that we're sitting where we are. And I just want to remind you tonight that we live in a world of have-nots. And if you're saved, you are a small percentage of this world that is a have I don't know what the percentage of those on this earth are saved. I'm not even sure. I don't even venture to guess. But I wouldn't assume it's any more than, I wouldn't assume it's out of single digits in terms of percentage. And I'm, I'm thinking about all the billions of people in this world. And how many of those are have-nots spiritually? How many of them have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? How many of them have never been reached with the gospel? How many of your neighbors are have-nots? How many of the folks that you see at the store when you go make, make a purchase, how many of them are have-nots? How many of those that you work with are have-nots? You see, we're in a position where we have something that most people don't have. And it is only when we forget what it used to be like for us that we stop having mercy and compassion on the have-nots. If you're wondering how to deal with the ones around you, and you're thinking, well, I sure just don't have a heart for them anymore. I want you to stop and think about where you used to be. It's time for you to take a journey back to Egypt. And maybe you're thinking, if you're like me and like Brother Chad was talking about in Sunday school this morning, I was saved as a nine-year-old boy. There's not a lot of trouble I got into. My list of sins wasn't all that long, although it was pretty impressive for a nine-year-old. I probably. But I may not be able to visit Egypt and remember what it was like, but I can certainly look at people around me and think, that could have been me. And when I stop and think about the misery, and I stop and think about the mess that people get themselves in, and, and I mean, I think about some people in my own family. I mean, maybe not my immediate family, I'm blessed for that, but just one step away, my, my secondary family cousins and aunts and uncles, and I look at the mess that they have made of their lives through sin. And I think, boy, I could be a have-not just as easily as them. If not for God's grace 
letting me hear the gospel as a nine-year-old boy, where would I be? Listen, Eastside Baptist Church has a fantastic opportunity in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Because we, our, this city, I'm going to go ahead and call it our city. You know, I, last I, I heard or last I saw, there were close to 190,000 people in Sioux Falls. In the surrounding areas, maybe 260,000 plus. That's a quarter of a million people. It sounds a lot more impressive when you say it that way. Quarter of a million people. How many churches in Sioux Falls, South Dakota are clearly preaching the gospel? How many churches in Sioux Falls, South Dakota have an active outreach effort? How many churches in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, of all the churches that we've seen, I mean, I just wonder how many of them are actively seeking to have knots? And I don't just mean putting coats on their backs. I don't just mean feeding them a meal every once in a while. I mean the spiritual have-nots. How many churches in Sioux Falls, South Dakota are actively and passionately reaching for the have-nots in our community? We have the gospel, we have the right doctrine, we have everything we need, but I just wonder if maybe some of us, even in this room, are not passionate about reaching the have-nots because we have forgotten what we used to be. We've forgotten what it could be like for us if God had never reached down His hands to me. We've forgotten how miserable it used to be. Some of you in this room, you could give a testimony and you could say, yes, I used to live in it. And yes, it was miserable. And yes, it was terrible. And yet somehow, in all that I've gotten to do and all I've gotten to enjoy as a child of God, I have forgotten that I used to be a bondman. I have forgotten how miserable it was every day to live in Egypt, to work with my hands and toil with my hands and give myself to make a brick only to turn around and do it again and it's never satisfying to the guy that's holding the whip. Maybe I think sometimes we have forgotten what we used to be. And I think of Harriet Tubman. What's her connection to this thought. Why was she po- so passionate about freeing slaves? Was it because they were her family members? Well, probably. If you had family living in that environment, you'd probably want to do what you could to get them out too. But she didn't just go for her family members. She, she, she wanted them to have freedom, but she also reached out to those that weren't family members. She wanted them to have freedom too. Did she just do it so that, you know, she she liked the thrill of the risk? I doubt it. I mean, she did something when she could have done something about it, but the main reason Harriet Tubman had such a strong passion for freeing other slaves was because she used to be a slave. She remembers what it was like. She remembered how, how miserable the nights were. She knew what bondage was. She remembered how it felt to not have freedom. She could still feel the abuse. She still in her body, I know, carried scars. She remembered her, the hopeless feeling, laying her bed, in, in her bed at night, knowing she'd have to wake up again and just do the same thing over and over. She remembered what it was like to live in fear. She remembered wh- what it felt to be hungry for days on end. She knew what they felt because she had felt it. And she refused to forget what she used to be. 
And there are people all over the world like Harriet Tubman that have a passion to help people overcome their bonds. I mean, there, there are places you could give your money to feed children, to provide clean water, to help them overcome poverty or disease or drug addictions and all those terrible bonds. Those are worth fighting against, but there are none as important as the most desperate bond they have to break, and that is the bond of sin. And those that are really preaching the gospel, clearly, are few and far between. The bond of sin is that one bond that, if never broken, will doom a man's soul to hell. And we have the answers to the most urgent and eternal questions. Be engaged in reaching those around you with the gospel of Jesus Christ. No other cause touches that importance. God told the children of Israel the way to maintain the proper attitude toward those with less is to remember where you came from. Remember that you were a bondman. Christian, have you forgotten that you were a bondman? Have you forgotten how miserable sin is? Have you forgotten how it feels to be hopeless? Have you forgotten the fear that comes when you know you're not in good standing with God? Have you forgotten how fearful it is to go to bed at night and just wonder if you're going to wake up alive? Have you forgotten how empty life can be? All of us need to ask ourselves the question, how passionate, how much of a heart do I have to reach those in bondage around me out of the, that are in slavery to the worst master of sin. In other words, you're a have. And there are people all around you tonight that are have-nots. And you think, well, I'm just not sure that that's how God wants it to work. But let me just remind you, I'm going to flip it a little bit. Jesus Christ himself, yes, he came as a have-not, but he was a have in heaven. The Bible says in Philippians 2, he was sitting at the right hand of his father. And he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Meaning, he didn't hold on to that position and say, I'm not going, I'm a have, you can't send me down there with all those have-nots. No, he let go of it. And he became obedient, the Bible says, obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. And he did it for a bunch of have-nots like you and me. It's time for us haves to stop being complacent about how good we have it. And to stop looking at church as a maybe just a social exercise, you know, what's what I do three times a week. And to start looking beyond ourselves, beyond these walls, at a world full of have-nots that are dying and going to hell. I read a quote from Harriet Tubman. When she first gained her freedom, she had traveled nearly 90 miles from Maryland to the free state of Pennsylvania. And as she entered into freedom for the first time in her life, these were her thoughts. When I found I had crossed that line, I looked at my hands to see if I was the same person. There was such a glory over everything. The sun came like gold through the trees. 
and over the fields, I felt like I was in heaven. And that freedom isn't even as good as freedom from the bonds of sin. If you've tasted both bondage and freedom like Harriet Tubman had, then you know what it's like and how good it is to have freedom. And you know what it's like and how bad it is to be in bondage. And you're the right candidate as a have to go and find a have-not and help them walk across that same line you walked across one time and feel the sun shining, looking at your hands like, am I the same person? When you got to experience something only God can do, you're a have. Most of us in this room tonight are haves. And it's time for these, this group of haves, maybe you individually, me, myself included, to stop thinking about all I have and start looking around for a bunch of have-nots. Because I know what it's like to be a have. And I want everybody else to enjoy the same thing. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.